How many of y'all have watched Anne of Green Gables? Or you've read the book? If you haven't, you need to. That's a fun. Uh, I've watched the movie. I didn't read the book. But it was fun. And if you're familiar with it, you know, uh, Lucy Montgomery tells the story of Anne Shirley, who was adopted into, basically by mistake, into this home, Prince Edward Island. They were looking for a boy. They got her. And if you know, if you've seen the movie, you know that Anne is this massive drama queen. You know, just everything is huge. And she has to have a bosom buddy, a kindred spirit. She longs. She's talking about this all over the place. And she meets. Diana Barry, just down the road, and the farm down there, and they become bosom friends and kindred spirits. And there's something special between Diana and Anne. Now they get into trouble together, and the movie book tells all their exploits. Um, my Diana Barry is a guy by the name of Gerald Simon. I met Gerald when I was seven. His sister Rosie was coming over to play with my sister Suzanne. They got three years on us, and she. Gerald tagged along, and from the moment that Gerald and I met, I mean, it was like some of these storybook friendships. It was, it was immediate. I mean, you've heard of David and, and, and Jonathan and Bonnie and Clyde and Sonny and Cher. Nothing compared to Mark and Gerald. I mean, we did everything together. They didn't sing, but we did everything else together. We rode bikes. We played hockey and football and baseball and, and uh, went to school together. We came to know Christ the same night at Awana. We, 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 unbeknownst to each other, we, were grow, we grew together. We vandalized together before we came to know Christ. We, were, we just did everything, got in trouble together. Uh, ironically, within two weeks, both Gerald's family and my family moved out of the neighborhood. Same, same time. And his moved before mine. So I remember standing on the sidewalk in front of the, the sold sign, watching Gerald and his family pile into their old Thunderbird and take off uh, for Canada. And I was waving. Never saw him again. Uh, that, that is etched in my mind. That, that friendship that we had all these years. Sometimes I think about Gerald and uh, wonder what he's up to. Is he still walking with Christ, wondering if he ever wonders about me? Uh, special friends. You can't have a lot of those in life, but once in a while you're graced with one. I believe the Philippians were that for Paul. If you got your Bibles, turn with me. Philippians chapter 1. We look at this relationship between Paul and and the church at Philippi. Beginning in verse 3, and as we read this, listen to Paul's language here. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion Until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is highly emotive language. Paul likes all of his other churches. But he never uses language like he does here in Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, my my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord this way, dear friends. Now, when you think about who Paul is, double A and a half type Paul, Paul's the one that kind of wrote off John Mark because he wimped out during one missionary trip. It it seems that John asked, asked forgiveness 
No, Paul wasn't going to hear about it. Paul's the same guy that, that picked the fight with Barnabas, the guy who discipled him for being too soft. Paul's the guy that had the guts to take on the apostle Peter, the one that Jesus put in charge of the church in Galatians chapter 2. I mean, Paul was a no-nonsense moving, you would think not a whole lot of emotion. But here, he's got these Philippians in his heart, and he is wearing his heart on his sleeve. And again, he liked all of his other guys. He says nice things in many of the epistles to them. But he wrote the other epistles with a specific purpose. For example, to correct false teaching, he writes Galatians and Colossians. To expound on heavy doctrine, he writes Romans and Ephesians. To um, correct wrong behavior, he writes First and Second Corinthians. To encourage those who are kind of on the edge, he writes the Thessalonian epistles. To help leadership get a backbone and figure out how they're supposed to serve in the church, he writes Timothy and Titus. But Philippians... We kind of can't find any of those purposes here. There's some teaching, of course, but it's kind of implicit. Really, the whole tone of the whole book is, is like this. It's deep affection and love. It's like he's writing these guys just because he loves these guys. Just because he likes them. Just to say, I appreciate and respect you. And you find this mutual respect all through this book. So it's a little bit different than any of the other other epistles Paul, Paul writes Regarding these guys. And I think this is the reason. That the church at Philippi, more than any other New Testament church, was a model church. All the other guys had something major to learn. Not that these guys didn't per se, but these guys were your model church. If we want to know what a church is supposed to do and supposed to look like and is supposed to act like, no better study than the book of Philippians. The Philippians lived out the gospel I think more than anybody else. Now, let's back up for a second. What exactly is the gospel? Let me, four words. If you get these four words down, it just helps you remember what the gospel's about. First word is God. Um, God created everything, right? He, he always was. He's eternal, infinite, kind, loving, holy. He's worthy of all, all praise. This is God. He always was. Big God. God. He created us. God. Second word, though. Mankind. Though he created us, he created us to have relationship with him. According to scripture, Adam and Eve's first sin separated them from God. And according to scripture, every person born on this planet since that time is born separated from God. It's like in our our spiritual DNA. We are separated from God. We've got that spiritual anarchy thing going. We are going to be in charge. We really don't need God. You don't have to to train up a baby to say, me, my, mine. They just know that's what you're supposed to be doing. There's that, that innate separation and I'm in charge of my life. That's the bad news. And if you ask people, survey after survey, and if you look at society after society, many people know, think, believe there's a God somewhere. They're just not sure how to connect with him. And enter religion. That's what religion is supposed to answer. How do you connect with God? And so religion's all over the world. This is how you do it, and everyone's got their different hoops you've got to jump through, etc. Paul was living those out at one point. Third word, though, is Jesus. Jesus was second person of the the Trinity, God forever, eternal, infinite, uh, almighty God, took on human flesh, came to earth, 
said that he gave up his life, no one took it from him. And when he, this is the heavy theology thing, when he is on the cross, God the Father looks into the past, takes all the sin, looks into the present, takes all the sin, looks in the future, takes all the sin, takes mine, your not generic sin, specific things that we've done, and puts them on Jesus. And so Jesus, in dying on the cross, bears your hell in mine. He, he takes that thing that separated us from God away. And when he rose, it was proof that, that God the Father accepted payment of his, of his payment for our sin. So all we have to do, it's not an issue of works, it's not an issue of being better and doing good and all the religious hoops. It's a matter of, of trusting, believing that his death was in my stead. And as you trust in that, believe in that, according to scripture, we're made new. That's our, the response, fourth word. It doesn't just happen, we have to respond. We have to receive the gift. We have to trust him. Now Paul was going through life, doing all the religious things that his society and his religion was telling him he had to do to reach God. But when he heard this, the gospel, the word gospel means good news, kind of blew his mind. Wow, this is incredible. And he thought, everybody's got to hear this stuff. And so he spends his life making sure everybody hears this stuff. So I got a map. And right about there, Jerusalem is right there, okay? That's where everything starts, right? Jesus dies there. That's where the gospel happens, right, right there. Persecution kicks in pretty, pretty close to immediately. And so the Christians go either up or they go southeast. Apostle Paul starts thinking. And he is from a place called Tarshish up there. And he's thinking, they don't know this gospel in my town. And so Paul, after, after telling all the people around here and getting in trouble about the gospel, he goes up. And he goes, spends a lot of time in here. This is modern day Turkey. And he's sharing the gospel. Goes to tar- town after town. He starts telling them, have you guys heard the gospel? And they're like, well, you know, what's the gospel? And he shares this with them. And he's planting churches all over the place. But then something happens. Acts chapter 16. Beginning in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. That's, that's that uh, Turkey, Asia Minor place on the west having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bethania, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. I don't know what that looks like, but somehow the Spirit of Jesus, they knew, would not allow them to continue on that way. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, in your map, Macedonia, see this right over here, it's modern-day Greece. This is the entryway. This is, the, this is the, the gateway to Europe. And it doesn't look like there's much distance, really, between these guys and these guys. But this natural border was like, was like night and day between Europe and Asia. Night and day. You didn't go to the other side. And so when Paul goes into Europe, uh, guess what first place he, he stops? Philippi. Now, if you've got European descent, you know what? You owe the people of Philippi something. You owe Apostle Paul something. And Philippi was going to become the headquarters for Paul's European tour. For the entire evangelization of Europe, it started in Philippi. That was going to be the, the, the headquarters, the, the, where, where it all started. So if you're in Acts 16, you can just follow it. I've got it on the screen. We talked about this a little bit at Easter, but, but just to remind us. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Philippi was a, a Roman colony. Not every city had that um, 
blessing. It was a very special deal. They were a, a haven for retired military people. They were, it, was a, it was a happening place. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, this normally Paul's MO when he would go into a town is he would head to the synagogue because he figures Jewish people are looking for the Messiah. I can tell him. I know him. I've met him. And so that was the, kind of the way he started off. But he gets into Philippi. The fact that he, there's no synagogue there lets you know there's not a lot of Jewish presence. But he knows if there are any here who are God-fearers, they're going to be hanging out by the river. This is kind of like a, a standard deal. So he goes there. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. These gals are there. They're having a precept study, Old Testament study. They're all uh, Jewish in their mindset, if not in blood. And so Paul kind of crashes their study and says, hey, gals, let me tell you something. And he gives them the gospel because that's what Paul does. Somebody who's been embraced with the gospel, they share the gospel. So that's what he does. And so as he's talking, there was a woman from the city of Thyatira, which is over in Turkey, which is where Paul just was. He could say, oh, yeah, I was there. I saw it. And there was an immediate connection named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, Lydia was a uh, on the upper crust. And we know this for a couple of reasons. First of all, she had a home in Thyatira and one in Philippi. It was, it was not happening. Also, she's named here. You did not name women at this point in history unless they were semi-famous. Everybody would know who they were. Everybody knew about, about Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth, which was kingly material. The only people who could afford this stuff were the, were the Bill Gates and Zuckerberg, were, were the people of, of means, it was said, actually, that you couldn't even deal with this unless you had blue blood yourself. Lydia was a very successful business person. And she was seeking God somehow, though. Her paganism from Thyatira, from Asia, wasn't working for her. She was, she was, she was trying to find something. She listens because it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, the gospel. And when she heard it, she and the members of her household were baptized, and she invited them to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Tradition says that the church in Philippi, this was their first building, Lydia's home. Tradition says it was their building for decades. The church in Philippi met in in. Lydia's home. Now, Paul would hang there and his companions, and they would travel back into the city and all that kind of stuff. The next text, it says, when they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants in the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. This slave girl was an exact opposite of Lydia. I mean, wherever Lydia was, this slave girl wasn't. Lydia was, was, was affluent. This, this girl was a slave. This girl was, was exploited. This girl was a victim of human trafficking. Lydia, on the other hand, they name her. She's a, a girl of means and power. Lydia's got intelligence, and she can sit by the river and reason and think. This girl is not in her right mind. She's demonic and, and a carn artist at the same time. And she knows, though, maybe because of her connection with the spirit world, she knows that this gospel that Paul's talking about is legit. But maybe she's thinking that message is for like Lydia-type people. That's not for anyone like me. And Paul, an incredible power encounter here, 
comes on with, with this, this slave girl, and, and she's delivered. She, she still has her earthly uh, slave masters, but internally she, she finds a freedom and a release. This slave girl ends up becoming a charter member at the Church of Philippi. Well, you can imagine her uh, owners, her pimps, were not real pleased with this, and so they got ticked off at Paul, threw him in, in jail, And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. This would be a great shame if not a capital punishment for him. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Next. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was obviously listening to their singing as well. And they replied, Believe, they give the gospel, because this is what Paul does. This is why he's there, give him the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved in, in, in your house. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, and all the others of the house. And not hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into the house and set the meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household had come to believe in God. This was an incredible thing. This jailer becomes part of the charter members membership of the church at Philippi. Now think for a second what God is doing here. It's pretty, pretty intense what he's got going on. You've got Lydia... Upper, upper crust. Now, who do you think Lydia's going to go tell the gospel to? And we know she does. Well, she's going to probably tell all of her upper, upper crust friends about the gospel. Then you've got the other side. You've got the slave girl who's been delivered. Who's the slave girl going to tell? Well, we know that she goes and tells all of her exploited, uh, disenfranchised friends of the gospel. And then you've got this guy right in the middle, this this blue-collar, hardened Vietnam vet. He's a Roman centurion guy. He's seen some rough stuff. Um, He comes to know Christ. Who's he going to tell in a town that is a bunch of retired military people? He's got a platform. And so we know that these guys are doing that, and the church at Philippi is starting to grow. You might say, well, hang on, hang on. How do we know that that's what they did? Well, back in Philippians 1... When he says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. <clears throat> the gospel, one of the things it does is it changes our horizontal, it changes our relationships. See that word partnership? You know that word. That's the word koinonia. We translate it in some places fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? Think about this for a minute. When we have people in a neighborhood over who don't know the gospel, they've never embraced the gospel, but we have them over for pie and coffee, we call that friendship. When we have folk from the church over to do the exact same thing, pie and coffee, we call that fellowship. Fellowship we think of as is warm friendship between Christians. But you need to know that's not what the word means. First century, it was this, this word, koinonia, was a, was a commercial term. If Bob and Harry wanted to start a fishing business, and so they pulled their, their bucks and they bought a boat, uh, it would be said that Bob and Harry were in a fellowship, koinonia, a, a uh, 
fellowship, uh, partnership, is a self-sacrificing conformity for a shared vision. In this case, Bob and Harry, they want to see this business flourish, and so they sacrifice their time and their money to make it happen. Christian fellowship is self-sacrifice and conformity to a shared vision, i.e., the advancement of the gospel. That's what fellowship really is. Uh, this is this is really really important because I fear sometimes that in the church all we've ever experienced really is friendship. It's not bad to experience friendship; that's nice, but we never get really to fellowship. The thing that ties us together often is our sports teams or our heritage or the place our kids are in school or our ethnic background or language, whatever it is. We've got a lot of those things. And really, we're just doing life together like the rest of the world might be doing life together. But we can claim Christian on it. That's friendship. But the gospel in a model church transforms friendship into fellowship. And so when I meet with brothers and sisters, if my conversation is all about friends and sports and weather, okay, that's friendship. If it doesn't include how can the gospel advance in my life, in your life, in my kids' life, in yours, in the relatives, in the neighborhood, and how can we get the gospel, thy kingdom come kind of thing, thy will be done, how can we make that happen? That needs to be, and if that's not there, It was friendship, maybe, but it's not not fellowship. The gospel transforms our horizontal. It transforms what society can give us or offer to us, friendship, into fellowship. Let me ask in your small groups, in your own heart, in your own life. Fellowship? A a partner in the advancement of the gospel? Or just kind of enjoying that it's happened, that it came my way? Gospel transforms our horizontal, but it also transforms our, our vertical. If you look over in verse 3, 4, Paul says that he prays for them. But he doesn't tell us what he prays for them. Then in verse 9, he says it. This is going to tell us what he prays for these guys. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, prayer should never descend to the place where it's simply a prayer retreat someplace where we can go and find strength through celebration of praise, or through uh, some mystic communion with him, or through uh, casting our cares. And and hear me, it's not wrong to do those things, of course, but prayer is so much deeper than that. When we pray, we're to pray for others. So when you pray for others, what do you pray? When do you pray for others? Well, if things are going well for him, we well, you know, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so. We don't even know what that means, but it's probably good. And so, you know, God surprise us. Just whatever that does, that's cool. Just keep things going okay, bless them. But if the prodigal exits, whoa, it's time to pray. Or if, man, I'm struggling to make the mortgage, we better be praying. Or if there's a health thing, got to pray. Or if we need some safety, we better pray. Or we need sunshine for the reunion or for the fishing trip, we better be praying on that. Or I need a date, time to pray. Or, you know, whatever. We, we pray for those things. You know, one of the 
coolest things for those who are doing the ultimate challenge right now. Ultimate challenge, if you're taking this, you've got a couple of colored pencils and you're working your way through the New Testament. One of the things you're seeking to underline is everything Scripture says about prayer. Well, as you enter into Paul's epistles, observe what you're underlining. It will blow your mind. What Paul prays for, what he doesn't pray for. Paul's, it's, it's amazing. Let me give, give you just a couple of, of, of examples with this. And this is multiple times. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't have this on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. Um, 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. If you look over in, in Colossians, and again, just, just listen up. Verse, chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 9. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have a great endurance and patience and joyfully give thanks to the Father. And then in chapter 4 of Colossians, this is amazing when you think about this, that Paul wrote Colossians, Philippians as well, from a cell, from prison. Now, if I'm in prison and I'm giving out my prayer request, I can tell you what my prayer request will be. And I'm guessing that you would say the same thing. These are my prayer requests. I get me out of this place, right? Here's Paul's prayer request. Colossians 4, verse 2, from a dungeon. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He says, you know what? Sometimes I get an opportunity to share and I get, get nervous and I, I, my, my, my hands sweat and I, I don't know what to say. Pray that I'll be bold. Now this is, this is Paul's prayer request from prison. This is the first thing that comes to his mind. Pray that I'll have opportunities and then pray when they come that they'll, they'll nail it. He prays, he prays gospel prayers. Prayer affects, should affect, the gospel should affect our, our vertical. Think for a second. If there was somebody mm, outside who doesn't know Christ, they haven't embraced Christ, they haven't heard the gospel, they haven't accepted it, but they're going to pray. What do you think they might ask for? If there's somebody who hasn't heard the gospel or embraced the gospel, and they pray, what might be on their prayer list? Let me ask you. Is it the same stuff that's on your prayer list? Because if it is, the gospel has not changed our prayer. You can, you've got to know there's a lot of folk who pray who aren't believers. It's the only difference is now we can say the exact same things we would have said before, but we can tag in Jesus' name on it. Uh, prayer, gospel is to change that. Look what Paul prays. For these guys in, in uh, Philippi. He says, this is my prayer. By the way, 2 Corinthians 8 lets us know that these guys in Philippi are on some hard times. Uh, the church had been planted 10 to 15 years earlier. And 2 Corinthians 8 lets us know, and I'm using Paul's words here. He's referring to these guys saying words like dire poverty 
extreme trials. These guys are not a cushy place. I don't know what happened in Philippi, but they're under, under some heat. And you think Paul would say, oh, and also I'm praying that you might get a little relief here. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. In the Greco-Roman world, number one word for love, before the New Testament came around, was the word eros. We get the word erotic from it. Yes, it refers to sexuality, but it's much bigger than that. Eros has two aspects. Uh, one, it's, it's the love of worthiness. I see somebody who's beautiful, or their great talent, or their personality, is whatever, and I, I've judged them worthy. So, I'll do anything for this person because I've judged them worthy. Second aspect of Eros. Eros is a love of um, getting. It's a pursuit. I want to be with you. I, I want to be like that. I want to know that person. I want to be around that person. Eros is not necessarily wrong. If we use it out of context, of course, we can twist it. But that was, that was what they understood. Greco-Roman world understood as love. Then Jesus comes around and Paul, and they take a word that was already in use, but minimally, and they elevate it. That's the word agape. Agape love is like the opposite of eros. It is a love of love regardless of worth. It is a love that doesn't seek to, to get. It's a love that seeks to give. We, God so loved the world, right? We got Romans letting us know that this is how God manifested his love. How? While we were yet sinners, unworthy, unlovely, ugly in about every way you can be ugly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sacrificed. Agape. Now, we might think, oh, I'm a person of love. Well, anybody can be a person of love if you see things that you like and they're nice and they're kind to you and they're sweet. But agape is on rare demand, even in the church, rare supply. And so when Paul prays for these guys, he says, I pray that you're agape. Forget the arrows thing. Okay, everyone's got tons of that. I pray that your agape would abound more and more and more. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Lydia, you have to, to love and care for the, the slave girl person and all of her friends, slave girl friends. But you just don't even understand. You don't get a clue where they've been and what they're about. You have to uh, sacrificially give for them. And slave girl. Society says that all these other people in the church are above you, and that can make you bitter and angry. I understand that. You need to embrace them and love them. And jailer, instead of judging the people who have more and judging the people who have less, what you're commanded to do is love. This is, this is wild because these guys are the model church. These guys need nothing. They're flying. And you would think Paul would say, well, I'm just praying that they're going to keep holding. He says, No. I pray that your love would abound more and more and more and more. And what is the opposite of love here? It's, uh, isn't, it, isn't it selfishness? See, and I pray what John the Baptist said, that you would decrease, that he would increase in your life. I mean, this was so huge for Paul. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Apostle Paul says that the goal of our teaching, this is, this is really wild to me, the goal of all of these epistles, of all of my teaching, is what? It's love. Out, out of a, a sincere conscience, and out of a pure faith, and out of a sound mind. This is Paul's goal. Paul says, now, now abideth faith, hope, and love, 1 Corinthians 13, but the greatest of these is love. I mean, hard, tough as nails, Paul. 
This is what's driving him. And so notice, though, it's not just nice things for people. Because if I just really love people and I'm kind and, you know, all we need is love. love. And I'm at flowers. And I'm, I'm really kind. I'm picketing for every disenfranchised. It's not. We need to love. But our love has to abound in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, love cannot be separated from this book. It just cannot. When I was with my kids, when they were little, they knew what it meant to love them. This is what they needed. This was what was best for them. No school, uh, cotton candy, popcorn, and Dr. Pepper. See, this is, if I love them, I would give them. Now, when we love other people, what do we give them? What society tells us is best for them? Do we give them what, what they are saying is best for them? Do we give them maybe what in our own heart we might think, well, I guess this is what's best for them? Or the God who loves them, who created them, who knows what will hurt their soul, who knows what they need to be like him, I think he's told us. And so Paul says, your love has to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You find somebody who's got all kinds of knowledge and depth of insight, but no love, you need to know that's sham. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. They've got to go hand in hand. If you find someone who's got the love thing rolling, but they've got no room for the word of God, it's a sham. Got to run from it. Paul says, you've got to have agape love. It needs to grow and bound in you, but it comes through understanding his word. So where are you in God's word? We've got to have time for it if we're going to grow with it, right? And then look at why he wants this. I think it's fascinating. He's, of course, he's praying from prison. But he's not praying for safety and security and those things. Again, not not bad things to pray for, per se. But he says, but the end all is not that I just am okay. That's that's I like to be okay. But that's not the primary thing. He says, I pray this so that you may be able to discern what is best. He says, you're going to be in situations where they're just complex and they're, they're frustrating because there are so, so many moving pieces and so many things that you don't know. And you've got to try to figure it out and you don't have a whole lot of time to figure it out. And the best is not what's best for me or best for my finances or best for helping me to re- get up the ladder further. That's arrows. You're, you're missing it. Go way back to, to square one. The best is what is best for bringing God's kingdom in. It's what's best for the individual. It's what is best to help them know him. It's what is best to advance the gospel. And he says that if you're, you're selfless and you're growing in that according to his word, then you know what? When you're in those situations, you're going to be able to discern so much better. And not only that, he says, if you can get this, you're going to be pure. Now that speaks of your motivation. Please don't think your motivation is pure. Your motivation doesn't, is none of your motivation is ever pure. We live in a fallen world. We're blindsided. We don't know how impure it is, but it can be purified. It can become more pure. And the way it becomes more pure is when we die to ourselves, we have less of us through the knowledge of his word, and he grows us. That we might be blameless. That our thinking, our words, our heart, our understanding, our values reflecting his. That's what Paul wants. It's gospel stuff. He says, so that you might... Be blameless until the day of Christ. In other words, Paul's looking forward to that day, not today. He's living for that day, not today. And in the meantime, if this is true with you, you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, that your fruit remains. It's going to happen. You cannot not be productive in life. We want to be significant. You cannot not be significant. If, in fact, you are growing in his love, agape love, more and more and more through the knowledge of God's word that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.
So let me ask you, are you praying gospel prayers? Has your prayer life been transformed by the gospel? Or is your prayer life, your prayer list, basically the same thing that it would have been if you hadn't known him, but you just, same thing? Sunday school teachers, you got to study. I'm with you. You have to make sure you give it your best, and you have to look for those crafts and make them the best you can. But the one thing you just can't, can't forget is to pray. You know, it's amazing here. Look at this. Paul knows. That, I mean, he's going to tell these guys about God. But before he does, before he talks to them about God, he talks to God about them. Paul knows. This is really, this is really key, man. This is so helpful for us, for me. That spiritual birth is spiritual, right? Have you ever tried to witness to somebody? You share Christ, and you got your arguments down, and you're all ready, and this is flawless, man. You would have led, you know, led the Holy Spirit to the Lord if, in fact, he was listening. You were, you were there. But when you talk to the other person, they're like, I mean, she's glad. They just didn't get it. And you're going, what else do I need to do? And you know that, that, that how can they hear without a preacher? i got to share it. But it, somehow, unless God flicks the switch, spiritual birth is a spiritual thing. He's got to do it. You know what? Spiritual growth is a spiritual thing. He's got to do it. And sometimes we think. And we think this, God, thank you for kick-starting, getting it all ready, and getting this guy born again. We'll take over from here. See, we got our discipleship program, man, and it's, we, we researched it, and we studied it, it's this tiered thing, and we got all the bright books and curriculum, and it's based on, you know, pedagogical stuff and social science studies, and we're ready to go. And when they work through our program, I'm telling you, we're going to have a disciple. It's going to be good. You'd be impressed, Lord. Paul knows, this is what I want for these guys. But the number one thing you got to do is pray for it. Pray for it. So youth leaders, go to the games, and I think our best people should be in youth work. What incredible time of life. Uh, play Xbox, uh, do the ice cream deal. But you can't forget to pray gospel prayers for these guys. Passionate. Because unless the Lord builds a house, you know, it's just not going to happen. You'll give them good time, but that's it. No spiritual fruit. Small group leaders. Lead your small group, man. Study, vacuum the carpet, get the brownies ready, all those things. But you can't forget so busy with those things, forget to pray gospel prayers for, for your small group. If they're going to grow, it's only going to be because God reaches into their, their hearts. Worship guys who want to lead us in worship, I'm grateful for you. I need to be led in worship. But in study and rehearse and practice and do all the things you've got to do. But pray for me. Pray for us. Gospel prayers for us. How about Parents. Pray for our kids, right? I mean, teach them etiquette and manners and and the Bible. Very important. But you can't forget to pray passionate gospel prayers for them. Because God is going to have to move and take all that understanding and bring it to light. It's only God that's going to pull that out. Spouses, when's the last time you prayed gospel prayers for your spouse? Most important thing, Paul knows, the most important thing. He'd pray for their other things if that was the most important thing. But he knows it's not. It's not. Sometimes we get our, we are being discipled. You and I are by the world. And unless we are in his word, having our love abound and grow accordingly, our our relationships are not going to be altered. And our prayer lives will not be altered either. But can you imagine, just imagine with me, if you, if me, if I, if we 
Had the gospel transform our lives and our friendships where we had fun together, we did life together, but a driving force was, man, how are you doing growing? How am I doing growing? How are our kids doing growing? How can we reach more people with the gospel? Can you imagine if when we prayed, we really did pray, and we prayed like Paul prayed? What kind of difference would happen? I wonder if then, if Paul would look back, you'd write a letter to FAC. If you'd say, I think of you guys with joy. Because your partnership in the gospel, it's transformed not just your tomorrow, it's transformed your today. And we have to be that model. That's our goal. And that will be our goal as we, we study through Philippians. Homework, real quick. This, these verses, 9 through 11, why don't you go home this week and pray this for you? If you don't pray for you, who else will pray for you? And say, Lord, please would you help your agape love to abound in me more and more. And through knowledge, I need to get in your word. Help me, show me how. Really, I mean, if you don't care about being blameless and pure in those things, then don't waste God's time or yours. Uh, But pray that. Then also maybe pray this prayer for your kids, for your small group, for your spouse. Pray God's word for that. Gospel prayers. Then thirdly, this week, read through Philippians again. Small book. Four chapters. Slowly, and as you read through it, just grab a pen. And every time you see some words that start popping out. I said something like that earlier. Just kind of circle it. Find it through. So that this book, the, the model that they give us today, will work into who we are.